I want to start the message with prayer, ask the Lord to, uh, to lead, give us ears to hear what he wants us to hear. Um, so let me just pray before we begin. Father, Father in heaven, what a, what a tremendous privilege we have to come before you in prayer because of Jesus, what he did. So we uh, come now, uh, our audience of, of one, ultimately, we're here for you. And uh, Lord, I, I, do, I do cry out to you on behalf of those who are ill and ask that you do a healing work. Um, Lord, we pray for, for this morning, you do a healing work in our hearts and uh, guide us in experiencing you. Lord, that we might uh, know you you came to, 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 to know us and to be known by, um, for us to, to know you. So I just, I pray you guide the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be pleasing first and foremost to you, and that you'd give ears to hear what you want to hear, I uh, want the, everybody to hear here. Um, so I just uh, thank you for this grace, and uh, ask your grace on this, your family, our family, the Bethany family, and all those who are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Before I begin, I want to encourage the men of Bethany. Just a quick little personal announcement. Beginning of the year, started with prayer. I want to encourage you to start with the Word of God. So if you know me, you know I love this book. Um, It's not my book. It's it's God's book. And uh, we need to be in it and under it. Slogan from years ago at Bethany was, a real man is a man of his word. This, This word. And uh, if, you haven't, uh, if you haven't read through the New Testament before, I want to encourage you. Um, I've got a, a program where uh, one chapter a day, about five days a week, six days a week, but um, devotional question per, ch- per chapter, and then uh, I text my answer. You can text me back yours. So if you've never done that, it, it's not easy to read the Word of God. It's not the newspaper. Um, so it's nice to be able to do it with somebody. So I want to encourage you, come see me after, after the service. I'd love to walk through the Word of God with you this year uh, in the New Testament. So that's for the men. Um, so I can email you the, the PDF. I can email the ladies, but I'm not going to be texting the ladies uh, <laughs> the, the answers. But um, uh, husband and wife, if you want to do it together, uh, uh, that's awesome as well, just to text one another. So... That's just a little side. Let's be in the Word of God, be in submission to it. Pastor started a series on experiencing God, and I thought about uh, giving a message on all the freak-out moments in Scripture uh, when people encountered God, but uh, I thought I'd do something even more exciting than that. I'd talk about theology. <laughs> You're like, great, Catholic school, parochial school, <laughs> boring. So... <laughs> But uh, it's because it wasn't connected to real life. And uh, theology isn't just a monastic gaze upward. It's supposed to be connected to real life. God is the one who came to be with us, to be, to be known and uh, to know us. Um, when I was a, we went to Africa, I was a missionary in my first year there, somebody said to me, a friend, Burkina Bay friend, uh, said, thank you for coming, not just sending money. He said, because we know that the church in America hasn't forgotten Africa. Money is one thing, but to be able to touch you, uh, shake your hand, see your face, and know that you love us and that we're connected to the church uh, around the world, 
was a, it was a powerful moment for me to realize this is what Jesus did. He didn't just send money. God didn't send money. He came to be with us, to be amongst us. And, and our theology really needs to be connected with our daily lives. The problem is that God's also totally other. So my, my, my theology is, is deep. I'm just kidding, it's not. <laughs> but uh, it's real simple. It's three things. Uh, I'm going to go... Go through it, and uh, we'll go into detail about it. But uh, the first point is God is bizarre. God's bizarre. We can't put him in a box or a building, and we can't control him. God is seemingly inefficient. That's the second point. I'll expand on each one of these, but uh, he's seemingly inefficient in our understanding of efficiency, certainly in American understanding of efficiency. But, but God is also extravagant. That's the third point. God's bizarre. Seemingly inefficient, but extravagant. So, um, our theology uh, should, be, uh, should be based in the Word of God and born out in our experience. I don't think I need to define the, the word bizarre for you. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, I think we all know it's the opposite of normal, but a normal varies from one culture to another. we got Portuguese, French... Spanish, Italian, Irish, right? So uh, normal is different from one culture to another. Um, and even our, our, our Puerto Rican friends would, would say, yeah, yeah, even Puerto Rican, <laughs> right? So, but God is bizarre according to any standard of normal, whatever the culture. How is he bizarre? He's bizarre in his methods and the people he chooses to use, his ways and whom he uses. I think myself... It's case in point, theology rooted in the word and born out in experience. Why me? Why did God choose the introverted son of a truck driver to, to, to be sent to the mission field? Why, why me? Um, I was called weird weirsma in high school. I was, I was <laughs> I'm still weird to many, but, <laughs> but God used a, a summer in inner city Philadelphia uh, working with inner city kids to change my heart toward people. And uh, he's still changing me, still need to be changed. But God reached down, and he called me to himself, and he called me to serve him. And to this day, I find it bizarre. Um, some of you might be here saying, uh, my first point, God's not bizarre, he's holy. He's respectable, he defines reasonable. If you're saying that, I want to challenge you to read the word of God this year. <laughs> Uh, I'm not denying his holiness or our need to respect him or that we need to accept his reasoning, but his ways and the people he chooses to use are not normal, <laughs> not normal. I'm going to back it up with the word of God. Uh, you got uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people, his holy nation. You can read about it in Genesis 29 and 30, chapter 29 and 30. Jacob is the father of the people of Israel. So his name gets changed to Israel later in life. So Jacob and Israel are the same person. But his first name was, was Jacob. And he stole the privilege of being in that position from his brother, the position of blessing and to be God's people, via deception. His name actually means deceiver. So you have the father of God's people stealing his way into that position uh, via deception. Um, then Jacob gets deceived himself by his father-in-law. 
into marrying two women, Leah and Rachel. To make matters worse, they're sisters. <laughs> so, he only wanted to marry Rachel, but uh, father-in-law tricked him on his wedding day, and he got, he got uh, the older sister as well. Because uh, at the, in that time, you had to marry the older sister first, and, and then the younger sister, and Rachel was the younger sister. So Jacob gets tricked himself. Um, and God prevents Rachel from getting pregnant, but allows Leah to get pregnant four times. And since the primary sense of significance for women at that time was, was having children, Rachel is ticked at her sister. I mean, she's livid that her sister is having all these kids. And so she tells Jacob to sleep with her servant girl. I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. <laughs> and, she, and her servant girl gets pregnant twice. And Rachel's happy about this. So Leah stops having kids. And so she does the same thing. She tells Jacob to sleep with her servant girl. And her servant girl has two kids. And the soap opera continues. This is the foundation of God's holy people, his chosen nation. Later, Leah buys the opportunity to sleep with Jacob from her sister. And she gets pregnant. And then she gets pregnant two more times. The last time was her, she gives Jacob his first girl. And finally, Rachel gets pregnant. And it stops for a while. If that's not bizarre, <laughs> I don't know what is. It's not PG-13, I'll tell you that. you got to read the Bible, man. If you haven't read the Bible, you got to read it. It's the foundation of God's people. It's a holy nation. So, and if you still have trouble, I want to go through the names of God's, God's uh, tribes here. Uh, that are given in Genesis 29 and 30. Um, it's a very dysfunctional family. You can only imagine. You can only imagine. So keep in mind as I read the, the, the names and give the meaning that Revelation 21.12 says that these names are going to be on the gates of glory. They're going to be in heaven. Okay? So gates of glory. Reuben is the firstborn to Leah, and his name actually means he has seen my misery. That's his name. He's seen my misery. God has seen my misery, and my husband's finally going to love me. That's Reuben. Simeon. His name means the one who hears. God has heard about my distress, and my, my husband's finally going to love me. Levi. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. Levi means feeling affection. Finally, my husband is going to love me. I've given him three sons. No. And then the fourth child son born to, to Leah was Judah. And at that point, Leah just says, you know what, I give up on my husband ever loving me. I'm just going to call, I'm just going to praise God. And she names him praise. Judah actually means praise. Now you know why Jesus came from the tribe of Judah and not Reuben, not the firstborn. Came from the tribe of Judah, the origin of the people of praise. Then you have the first of the servant girls of Rachel, Dan means vindication. God's vindicating me by giving, forgiving my, uh, with my sister, giving my servant girl. Naphtali is the second to Rachel's servant. It means struggle. I'm in a struggle with my sister and I'm catching up. <laughs> and then you have Gad, which is the first of Leah's servant girl, which means good fortune. Can you imagine in the morning Leah saying to good fortune, you know, have you gone over and greeted Rachel this morning? Why don't you go greet Rachel? 
<laughs> Good fortune. I'm toasting you, sister. Um, you know, Asher is the next one to the servant girl, and his name means happy. I'm happy that I'm beating my sister. Have you looked at the score? It's six to two, sister. I'm killing you. Happy about it. Issachar is the next one to Leah. Means rewarded. She believes she was rewarded by God for giving her servant girl to, to Jacob. And Jacob's just going along with all this. Zebulun uh, is the next one. Means honored, honored by God. And finally, we have Joseph. Many of you heard of Joseph, and you know Joseph. That was the first one born to Rachel. And his name means, may he add. God's like, no, we're going to stop for a little while. <laughs> but that's the, that's the origin of God's people and the names, and they're going to be in the gates of glory. You've got to read through the Bible, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, but, and as you do, obviously you want to listen to God. You want to let God change you. But you also have to take time to laugh. There's some really weird stuff in here. And uh, my son, when he was seven, he started reading the Bible for, for the first time, big boy Bible, and he, he, uh, he starts reading in Ezekiel. <laughs> That's a weird book if you haven't read Ezekiel for a seven-year-old. I'm like, son, you know, maybe you should start in a different place. And so he goes to Revelation. <laughs> I said, son, you know, most people start at the beginning of a book when they read it, so why don't you try that? So he goes to Genesis, and then he goes up to his mom, and he says, mom, did you know that Jacob had more than one wife? She's like, go talk to your dad. <laughs> read the Bible, he said. It'll be good, he said. <laughs> yeah, you got some questions to answer. If you want to have talks with your kids about stuff, have them read the Bible. I'm telling you. But the most bizarre of all is Jesus' birth. For God to become a man is radical. It's radical. But to come as a helpless baby confounds the critics and uh, is a stumbling block for many. But it didn't stop there. He was born in a stable, shed for animals. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of the universe chose to be born as a baby in a stable. No one in their wildest dreams would have ever imagined God who would come like that. But God isn't just bizarre in his ways and the people that choose to use. He's extravagant in his love. He's extravagant for his glory and for our good. Because Jesus came the way he did, there isn't a people group in the world, in the most remote village in the world, who can't relate to him who can't be reached by him. He wasn't above or too high for anyone to reach. No one is so low that they can't reach Jesus. Jesus came to be with us and to be reached by us. That's the God we serve. He's extravagant in his love and for his glory and our good. Only the most arrogant of mockers reject the message, the amazing message of Jesus and his birth. But it is bizarre. But the application point of the, of the first point is uh, no one, no one can be too far removed from God's call in their life and to be used by him. If you're here saying, God can't use me, won't use me, never use me after what I've done, it's not true. He can and he will use you. If he can choose a man like Jacob, deceiver, and a son like Judah, 
which, yes, his name means praise, but if you read further in the story, Judah's lineage was continued by a liaison he had with his daughter-in-law who was pretending to be a prostitute. I'm telling you, it's weird stuff in the Bible. Jesus came through him. That's the line that Jesus came through. If he can use people, those kind of people, he can use you. And he will use you. He can use me. It doesn't deny his holiness or our need to become like him in character, but never doubt that God can change you and use you regardless of your past. Some of you might have a hard time embracing this first point because of my second point. God is seemingly inefficient. God may have plans for our good and his glory, but frankly at times his plans, if we're honest, are dismally inefficient according to our understanding of efficiency. It's hard to swallow. Take myself as a case in point. Went to the mission field. Spent five years in preparation to go there for Bible translation. Get there, and two years after we're there, we're medically evacuated due to a situation with my daughter at the time. And we were told we had to wait two years before we could return with her. She had a rare... Um, complication with the anti-malaria meds that we take to avoid malaria. Two years on furlough, we go back, two years uh, in, in the country, and, and in those two years, instead of doing Bible translation, they have me do an administrative role that I wasn't trained for, no experience in. <laughs> they said, but we need you to be doing this. You need to train a national to take that role. So I'm um, training somebody for something I'm not experienced in. <laughs> uh, but um, in those two years, realized that the, the, the leadership of the organization we were with wasn't just interested in trans transferring the administrative roles to the nationals, but they wanted us to uh, transfer our, our translation projects to the nationals as well. So after over 10 years, we got to leave the country. It's a new direction. I was mad at God. <laughs> Couldn't deny that God was at work, but I was mad. I'd given my life for this. Now I gotta leave. And knock down, drag out conversations. But God, why? If it was if it was your plan all along for us to, for the transfer to happen, why did you have us go through this process of, of training and everything else? And if you had asked me what I thought of the Lord's timing at that point, <laughs> I don't know what I would have said. I was frustrated, hurt, gave up a lot. The amazing thing about God is He not only forgives our sins, but He endures our tirades as well. You only have to read through the book of Psalms to realize when you see what David says, God, God can, he understands. You never win a tirade, by the way. I never won one. If you ever win one, let me know. <laughs> but uh, um, in my quiet place with God, um, I was awakened to the fact that God's plans were making me look bad. I was his servant. He could move me where he wanted to move me. And I had to repent of my pride. It was my project, my Bible translation. No, it was always his. It was always his. I would never have admitted it or been able to even see it, but I had plans for God's glory that is a good chunk of glory for me, for myself. And that's what I was watching evaporate in front of my eyes, not God's glory. My, my possible glory. God simply wanted my obedience. That's what he wants from you too. Amen. It won't always make sense. Sometimes we can look back and see God's extravagance, but it's not usually clear in the moment. 
We have to believe he's at work for his glory and for our good. From our human perspective, perhaps the most inefficient act of God was coming after thousands of years as a baby and spending 30 years before he started ministry. You got the bizarre and the extravagant with him coming as a baby, sure, but if it was his plan all along to have two and a half years of ministry, why spend 30 years growing up? I mean, from a company standpoint, from a business standpoint, if you're going to have world domination, you don't do 30 years of investment for two and a half years of output. It's just, that's inefficient from our American perspective. So why not just come down, do the job, and leave? That's the way we think. But Jesus spent 30 years growing up so that when the Bible says we have a God who can sympathize with us, it has weight to it. Jesus' life was not a waste, but an extravagant statement on God's part of his love for us and his sympathy with us. Application point to the second one is whatever the delay you may experience, or the inconvenience you may have to go through, because of his timing. We have someone who can understand in Christ and can sympathize with the bizarre, seemingly inefficient manners and ways of God and can help us to submit so that God can be glorified and good can result for all of us. I want to swing back to the first point before I finish with the, the last one. I've mentioned extravagant a couple times, but I want to go back to the first point, God's bizarre, because I think there's a stumbling block for many of us. I don't know your past. I don't know what your future holds, but I'm sure many of you have painful experiences, bizarre experiences in your past, and have seen seemingly inefficient moments. But if, you have had, if you've had eyes to see, you've been able to see the extravagant love of God. That's why you're here. However, it's the bizarre side of God that's often pain, bitterly painful. And it's those bitterly painful experiences that cause us to, to close ourselves off to the extravagant love of God. When bad stuff happens, we sometimes never see the favorable side of it. Myself, as an example again, Christmas season, we just got over the Christmas season. Um, supposed to be a time of joy and celebration. And for a number of years for me, it was, it was a time of loss. I was in college, second year of college. A friend of mine and I were at a roller skating rink with a bunch of inner city kids, and uh, it was their party. I had a great time. Stephanie was her name, and a uh, fantastic gal. And the next day, I, I told her fiance, I said, Tim, man, you're a lucky man. You're a blessed man to have someone like Stephanie to go through life with. She loves kids, she loves the Lord, she, she's committed to ministry fantastic gal. And uh, that night, Stephanie had a brain aneurysm and was gone, just like that. It was bizarre. It was ex extremely painful for Tim. He had to work through a lot of stuff. Just why, God, why? Next year, home on Christmas break, friend, pastor's son, going to Bible college with, with me from the Denver area. Christmas Eve, went out and killed himself. 
totally out of the blue, just bizarre. Only months earlier, he'd given bone marrow to save his brother's life. Stuff you just don't understand. Why? Next year, my best friend's mom died of cancer at Christmas. When we got married, two of our, we had two miscarriages in the month of December. Christmas was a time of loss. And I was at a loss to explain it all. Why does God allow these things to happen? Why the fires that just took place in Colorado? The tornadoes in Kentucky? COVID? Why does he allow it? He does allow them, you know. Because if he didn't, that would mean there's someone bigger or something bigger and stronger than him over whom he didn't have control. But it's because he allows them that we have a hard time trusting him and embracing him in his fullness. And that's what I want to build out this morning. Many of you no doubt have hidden pain, experiences in the past that you've refused to release to the Lord because, in fact, you blame God for them. He either caused the pain or allowed it to happen. And the pain, he allowed the pain to come and it devastated you. Perhaps the most dramatic example of this is in the slaughtering of all the children surrounding the birth of Christ. If you remember the story of Herod, he ordered the slaughter of all the kids under two years old. And Jesus was shuttled off to Egypt so he, where he was allowed to be safe. But all the other kids were slaughtered. Why? Why? Why did God prophesy that so that he had to fulfill it? I don't know why. Scripture says the mothers refused to be comforted. I don't know why. I don't know. But the thought hit me in my Christmases of loss, not just that it's not always a time of joy, but also that the same women probably met Jesus when he was older and in his ministry. Jesus probably ministered to them and healed them. If they knew that he was the cause of their pain, they probably would have refused his healing touch for their empty arms and their aching hearts. But as ironic and as bizarre as it is, he's the only one. He's the only one who could bring them full healing, complete healing. They couldn't find it anywhere else. Christ's death on the cross shows us that God doesn't just ask us to accept the, the painfully bizarre experiences, but he asked, he asked of himself the greatest sacrifice of his own son that we sang about earlier. And it encourages me to see that Jesus struggled to accept the cross. One of the most powerful passages in Scripture to me is the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, if there's any other cup, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And he prayed fervently, sweated blood. That's how intense it was. He walked in submission for God's glory and our good. I have questions that can't and won't be answered. You probably do too. 
But I can't get away from the extravagant love of God. It's more amazing than my pain and my unanswered questions. Jesus understands that God's seeming, seeming inefficiency and the bizarre methods for his glory. Do what Jesus did. Surrender to God what you don't understand. Let his extravagant love heal you, forgive you, transform you. Sometimes it's not simply about forgiving others, other people, although we do need to forgive other people. Sometimes it's about letting go of a grudge against God. A friend who was getting ready to retire a number of years ago told me that uh, they found out his, his wife was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. After years of hard work and saving and planning and dreaming, he didn't have anyone but the Lord to deal with. They needed God's strength to accept the difficult circumstances. God had allowed it, but they knew God was the only one who could get them through and give them the strength to accept it and to model to the world around them what love is. We often get bitter at God and refuse to turn to him, rather blame him. And during a crisis, it's normal, it's understandable. I had a professor who was an atheist and he would mock me. And I came to find out as I dug and learned and didn't, didn't move away from this guy, but got, got in his face a little bit, found out he lost his wife to cancer. He was a strong Catholic before and lost his wife to cancer. He was angry at God. That's why he was an atheist. I used to say, tell me about the God that you no longer believe in, because I probably don't believe in him either. Because it's a lot of time birthed out of pain. C.S. Lewis said, don't come talking to me about the consolation of religion, or I shall suspect you don't understand. He was in the pangs of grief, having lost his wife. He worked things out with the Lord later on, we need to, to work through our pain with God so that he can bring good. We can be blinded by our pain. Allowing God to use you will heal you too. Will you give your pain, your past to the Lord? As bizarre as it sounds, he may have allowed it, but he's the only one who can truly heal you and allow you to turn it around for his glory and for your good and for the good of others. I'm inviting you this morning to experience God like never before. I'm inviting you to wrestle with God. I guarantee you, theology won't be boring. <laughs> It's real. It's raw. He wants you to come in those raw moments to him. He doesn't want you to run away in our hurt. I can guarantee you if you do, you will have many, many look what God did moments that just shock you. This year and in the year to come. Not only will you have look what God did moments, like Jacob, who wrestled with God, and his name was changed to Israel, you'll be blessed beyond 
you can imagine. But engage with God. He wants to be known and to be made known by you. And through you, through your story, He's going to bring glory. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you are bizarre. I don't get your timing. But Lord, I thank you. And I praise you for your extravagant love. Your extravagance for your glory and for our good. Lord, I pray that, that you would empower each one of us here to walk with you in a new way this year perhaps wrestling with you wrestling through those those deep areas that we've shut off to you that you might heal and ultimately bring glory and good Father it's, it's beyond what any of us can do you're the only one. Help us to keep turning to you, experiencing you in this way. Lord, I love you. I thank you for loving me, for loving this family. All right, I pray for your grace now as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, John. I really believe there are people in this room today that this is exactly the message that you need to hear, that there are things going on in your life personally or maybe the lives of people next to you, close to you, that you just are saying, God, this none of this makes sense. Or maybe you're struggling and you're doubting your faith. I just want to encourage you, as John said today, that in, in God's Word, you will find just story after story after story of human weakness, of God's plans being different than what we expect. But you're always going to also find that He, His redemptive love is woven throughout every single one of those stories and what God is doing. Um, so I want to encourage you today to just continue to dive into God's Word, continue to pour into Him, continue to love His people, and, and you'll be amazed what God is um, does in your life. Amen.